0: Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Need Some Introduction. In today's episode, primarily, I will be discussing the most recent episode of The Boys, episode number five, called The Last Time to Look on This World. Last week's episode was actually called, I believe, Glorious Five Year Plan. I think I misidentified it as Rise of the Seven, which I think was a better title, by the way. Plus, very briefly, a review of Spiderhead, the new science fiction film starring chris helmsworth and produced by Chris chris helmsworth on netflix and i said i wasn't going to do it i said i wasn't going to do it but i am going to give you a very brief recap of episode five part five of obi-wan kenobi why victor why'd you go back for more the reason i'm even bothering to talk about it is because this episode episode number five is a pretty good episode (laughs) surprise surprise so if you have been hesitant to check it out and you have watched this much of it i do recommend episode five because there's a little light at the end of this tunnel i don't know if i would come back for another season but this is pretty decent just a reminder once again we will be continuing to cover the boys obi-wan kenobi wraps up next week and i'll be having my final opinion on that Nick is actually in Disneyland, I believe, next week, so he will not be able to, ironically, discuss Obi-Wan Kenobi, but we'll be back the following week and we will discuss Obi-Wan Kenobi as well as Doctor Strange, which is now coming to Disney Plus this Monday. So if you haven't caught it yet, definitely check that out and check out my review in this same feed. It's about a month and a half old now, so the beginning of May, my review of Doctor Strange 2, directed by Sam Raimi, which I thought was pretty good, decent. And I did enjoy, I am a fan of Sam Raimi, so I did enjoy some of those Sam Raimi flourishes, which apparently turned off a lot of Marvel fans, but I like those idiosyncrasies. Also want to briefly briefly mention that Ms. Marvel had another episode this week, which I will not be breaking down, but I did find it entertaining. It still continues to be very much in the mold of a Spider-Man film. We see her joyously discovering her powers, which I definitely enjoy seeing that. And they add a little subtext here. We see that she is... Living in this patriarchal Muslim society, the women have to sit separate from the men inside the mosque, etc. So we see her not only having these powers, but how that is a metaphor for an oppressed class of people, honestly. And her parents, who are very conservative from the old country, trying to deal with her daughter, their daughter, who is in this new culture. Obviously, a story that I think most immigrants can sympathize with. So it continues to be fun and uh, dealing with some. Issues in a very subtle way. Very much feels like, especially this episode, feels like a high school show. But they do introduce potentially a villain, an ally. Hard to say who what's going on there in the last moments of this episode, too. But it is expanding the mythology in an interesting way. So definitely still interested in that. Check it out if you haven't. Even if you're not a teenage girl, but if you're a teenage girl, you'll probably love it, by the way. And in the near future, Sona will be coming back to watch and review weekly only murders in the building, and of course Better Call Saul, which is less than a month away now, just three and a half weeks away from the return of Better Call Saul. So make sure you subscribe so you know when all that becomes available. You can always email us at needsomeintroduction at gmail.com. Give us a review on your podcatcher of choice or a five-star rating if you'd like to support us. And most importantly, recommend this to your friends and family. With all of that out of the way, I did also have a review And a recommendation for folks who do like the boys something that i think is very much in line with the dark comedy and some of the grisly visuals of the boys it's a show on netflix called love death and robots what exactly is a tech millionaire it's a lot like a regular millionaire but with a hoodie and crippling social anxiety should we shoot it fuck yes coots let's shoot it and then robots killed them. <laughs> so the third season of Love De- Death and Robots just premiered recently. And this is an anthology of short films from many different filmmakers produced by David Fincher and Tim Miller. David Fincher, of course, the one of the most skilled directors of his Age, the director of Fight Club, Gone Girl, Panic Room, Seven, just to name some, and Tim Miller, who is the director and producer of the Deadpool films. And I would say that in general, these episodes are more in line with Miller's mentality than Fincher. But I highly recommend this. Most of these episodes are not great, but I'm a big fan of anthologies, as I've mentioned before in these episodes of the podcast. Because you watch it for 10-15 minutes, there's usually some good idea in there, even if it's not perfectly executed. And there's another story in 15 minutes. You don't have to put in a three-hour watch to find out you're going to be disappointed in the storytelling. And I really do like that. It's like gives you a lot of different flavors. It's like having a buffet. Nothing's perfect, but you got a lot of different flavors. It's something good there. And this third season is probably the best of the three seasons of the show. So season one very much felt like it was cobbled together, as if these were existing projects that had just kind of been put under this umbrella for release. And then season two, the first couple episodes, I found really disappointing, not interesting at all, and I didn't watch season two. But then I did come back for season three and retroactively finished season two and found, especially in the light of season three, which I thought was very strong, that even though season two is definitely the weakest of all of these seasons, it still is once again just interesting enough. And I mean, how much of a time commitment is it? I mean, even the entirety of season two is less than feature length. It's maybe two hours, two hours and 15 minutes. Since all of these individual episodes are only 10 to 20 minutes, 20 minutes max, maybe 15 minutes on average. But let's get to season three. Importantly, there is the first episode actually directed by David Fincher and it is called Bad Traveling. And this is just to show the skill of like a really talented director how well directed this episode is. It's really stunning And really grotesque, by the way, so as a call-out, I would only make this recommendation, maybe not only, but make this recommendation primarily in this episode correlating to The Boys, since the visuals in this anthology, oftentimes, I'd say, more than half of these episodes feature extremely disturbing imagery. And if you're a fan of The Boys, you're okay with that, but if you're a fan of, like, Obi-Wan Kenobi, if that's as far as you go down the line of graphic violence then woo, this is something you need to be warned off of, I would say. But if you don't mind it, I actually think it's pretty impressive. I'm actually a fan of horror movies, like I've mentioned before. And I don't mind gore if it serves a purpose. And I kind of like when some of these visuals can actually be transgressive. And I guess, I mean, it's kind of shocking, the imagery in these episodes. I guess since it's animated, you can get away with more because, wow, like some of this stuff is really, truly disturbing. So my recommendations, if you want to do a sampling, I would say... The strongest episodes, the ones that I think universally are going to really knock people's socks off. I would start, honestly, with the very last episode of Season 3 called "Jibaro." This episode is so unbelievably, beautifully animated. It, even if you don't appreciate the story, even if you're not into animation, your jaw will be on the ground as to the visuals here. It is absolutely stunning. One of the most incredible design jobs. I've seen movie, TV, whatever, you name it. This is absolutely stunning, stunning work. And it really gives you a feel for like absolutely state of the art, what you can do with animation right now. It's really unbelievable. Now that is also probably the tip of the iceberg here. (laughs) Beyond that, obviously, I would say also season three, definitely check out Bad Traveling. That is the David Fincher episode, the second episode of this third season. Once again, incredible visuals, very much stylized, not going for naturalistic, visuals like the Jabaro segment which is almost photorealistic it's like humans that look like actual humans bad traveling features a lot of stylization but the visuals are just creepy it just creates this very well defined science fiction world it shows us and not tells us the way that this there's a monster in it and how it actually works. It can actually puppet dead people extremely disturbing imagery by the way as you see these bodies decomposing. And it's just very impressive very scary very tense. But a very simple story, very much like an old, almost campfire story you would, you would tell. For the sheer thrill of it, incredible spectacle of what you can do when you're doing something computer animated, there's actually a couple episodes that I would recommend. One being the very last episode of season one called The Secret War, which is about a secret war that the Russians fought against these vampire-like monsters. And this is basically like the best... Video game cutscene you've ever seen, it's jaw dropping how immense this battle becomes. And some of the visuals, once again, really truly amazing. Many of these episodes are comedic, they have different levels of quality, but one I would call out for being, and maybe just because it's freshest in my mind, but there's the fourth episode of season three called Night of the Mini Dead. And this is basically worldwide, like World War Z scale zombie infa- invasion infection. That spreads throughout the entire world, all done in miniatures. It's really very funny. And maybe one of the absolute best of these comedic episodes, but, and there's a lot of these that are comedic, which doesn't mean they're not gross still, <laughs> but they are both at the same time. One thing that I found, especially in season one, most disturbing about this whole series, and maybe just speaks to how much of a male culture computer animation can be, that the very first three episodes, you basically have two extremely grim and violent episodes, which we have some of the most visually dazzling effects. The very first episode called Sonny's Edge and the third called The Witness, but they also feature sexual violence, which I find very disturbing in the context of the show. So I would warn that there are some of these episodes where you do have some of this grisly content, but at the same time, some of these episodes with the most problematic content is also some of the most visually dazzling. But for my money, and maybe this says more about me than it says about anything else, I tend to go for more of this esoteric, high-minded science fiction. I like when science fiction can make me think about something I've never thought about before or not in that way. And if you're like me and that sounds interesting to you, I would recommend the final episode of season two called The Drowned Giant based on a short story by J.G. Ballard in which a giant human form washes up on shore, a giant man, naked man, And it's basically somebody observing the decomposing, the way that people at first are awed by this body, and then they treat it like a playground, and then they desecrate it. And it's really just, I guess, Ballard's work itself is a mediation or meditation on life itself, on the fact that we all have to deal with the fact we're going to die someday. And the visualization of this body decomposing on the beach is really profound, not just gross, but really profound. But for my money, the absolute best episode of this entire series goes all the way back to season one, the 14th episode called Zima Blue. And I won't spoil it for you here, but it is taking place in the far future and it deals with issues of artificial intelligence and mortality and our relationship with technology, all in a very, very simple metaphor, a surprising story, the way it unfolds. And really surprisingly, like shockingly in the end, really emotionally powerful. So I consider this the absolute best, the high point of the series. Although, honestly, even the worst of them, even the ones that have the silliest, just joke based purpose for existing, are actually pretty entertaining. That's Spider-Head. We're proud of our work. Your presence in this facility, while technically a punishment, is a privilege. Have you been? Drug study. In science, we have to explore the unknown. They've been testing me up and down. A lot weirder stuff than usual. This is new frontier stuff here. Before we begin, I need your permission to administer Dan Forty. This place can really mess with your head. Drip on? Acknowledge. You drip on? Acknowledge. Acknowledge. Yeah, acknowledge. Let's do it. this. Are we getting this? <laughs> Whoa. This doesn't feel right. Time to worry about crossing lines was a lot of lines ago. All right, the second thing I want to briefly discuss is also on Netflix. It is Spiderhead. Just a conflation of a bunch of things that are going on right now. This has Miles Teller and Chris Helmsworth. And is directed by joseph kaczynski so interestingly we have thor himself about to have the next thor movie just around the corner and here he is producing this film and starring in it we have miles teller who is currently in the godfather making of docu-series whatever you want to call it the offer at the exact same time this is coming out but of course most importantly of all he is currently in top gun maverick which is going to be the biggest movie of the year, probably, a massive success, directed by Joseph Kaczynski, the same director as this Spiderhead movie. In the film, Chris Helmsworth plays a megalomaniacal tech-slash-pharmaceutical CEO who runs a special prison on an island, a beautiful island that you fly in on his private airplane to, where prisoners can reduce their sentences by getting drug-tested with different mood-altering drugs. Some make you happy, some make you angry, some make you terrified, some make you fall in love. And what we see is Miles Teller as one of the prisoners, the main protagonist of the film, trying to unravel what's actually happening there and also getting emotionally involved with Journey Smollett playing Lizzie. And as I mentioned, it's based on a George Saunders short story, Escape from Spiderhead. Now, I watched the movie and I will tell you, I'm not going to spoil it for you, but it is totally eh. Like, it's very much just kind of middle of the road. Not that interesting. I have read the George Saunders story that this is based on. And big chunks of that story are literally transcribed. Like, the dialogue that people speak to each other is literally what the narrator is written, has written in that story. It's almost the entirety of that story, which is very short, by the way. And I will include it in the show notes if you want to read it. It's available for free. You can just click the link and read the, uh, read the story. And it's basically an expansion of that. They've taken exactly what is on the page there and then added some scenes in between and specifically at the end to expand the story now the endings are completely different so it's not a spoiler to read one versus the other and the only reason i want to bring it up this very mediocre film after i'm watching it i'm really just curious as to (laughs) why it was made (laughs) first of all why did chris helmsworth want to produce this film he does get to play a different type of role but i don't think it's that interesting maybe that's the goal maybe he just wants to get away from the roles he usually has to play so it does give him a different shading Secondly, why did they make this film? The ending of the film, which I will not spoil, but the ending of the film is so utterly different than the ending of the short story. The short story has a real, almost comedic streak to it. And then it ends, it pivots into something really metaphysical something very internal in a way. And of course you really can't pull that off in a movie. So they go a different route, which is fine. But I do find it's very strange that like this was the film that they adapted. This is the story, the George Saunders story that they adapted. By the way, this is not one of Saunders' best works, but I do find the ending is very haunting. It really sticks in your mind, the ending of that short story. It's in the show notes, so check it out. It'll only take you less than half an hour to read it. So, very strange that they adapted it in the way that they did. And my final point I would make is that the most memorable thing about this film adaptation is the music that's being used. It's a lot of yacht rock and just kind of soft rock of the 80s. And I'm sure there will be many, many playlists made of all the music that is in this film. So just check Spotify for Spiderhead playlist. I'm sure there'll be dozens of them. And other than the nostalgia of hearing those songs, it also is very strange that this is the tone they went with. Was this supposed to be comedic? How do you buy some of the darker stuff in the story with this comedic tone? And with all that being said, I think that Joseph Kaczynski, who just a couple episodes ago when I reviewed Maverick, I was a big defender of him, you know, People are not fans of his early work. He did a lot of sci-fi at the beginning of his career. He did Tron Legacy. Then he did Oblivion with Tom Cruise. First time he worked with Tom Cruise. I like both of those films, although most people do not. And I like the kind of cold detachment that he has in those sci-fi films. And then I think it also works very, once again, he's very cool and detached in the next two films he made, which are almost like Brothers, Home of the Brave, also with Miles Teller, by the way, this firefighter, based on True Story, Firefighter Saga, and Top Gun Maverick both heart-on-their-sleeves heroic stories, which, once again, his cool detachment is perfect because it becomes like this blank palette for people to play out these heroic acts. So the fact they brought him in for this film is very strange because he gives it the same cool distance that he gave, like Oblivion, for example, but there's a certain degree of zaniness that the film expects that is obviously not in the tone of the film. So anyway, I would say if you watch this, You won't dislike it. You'll forget you watched it a day later. (laughs) So your time is better spent somewhere else. I just wanted to call it out because I find it so strange. The fact that Miles Teller has had this three film coupling now with Joseph Kaczynski. Strange pairing between the two of them. That Chris Helmsworth wanted to make this film. Which really doesn't seem like he could make anything right now. He could probably get anything greenlit. This is the film he wanted to go and make on his own. And of course, who thought this story would be adaptable into a feature film? And why get Kaczynski as a director? Like, what's this take that he had that works when you needed something? I think the tone of the film needed to be able to slip from one genre to the other in a way that this does not at all. It's very strange, not terrible, but just a weird combination of ingredients. You grow too aggressive, Anakin. Be mindful. Jedi's goal is to defend life, not take it. Mercy doesn't defeat an enemy, Master. (laughs) (laughs) Why, (laughs) you're going to lose. Launch the attack. Okay, next topic, the fifth episode, part five, as it's called, of Obi-Wan Kenobi. So I'm about to spoil this episode. Before I get to that, I'm just going to give you a very general review if you have been hesitant to jump in. Not sure I'm convinced yet that it's worth watching. (laughs) Even if the finale is an improvement, even over what we saw here this week, I'm not sure I would stick around for a second season. I think I'm pretty much out on the Star Wars franchise for some period of time. You know, I've been burned too many times. But if you have gone this far, I would say this episode gives me some hope that this whole thing wasn't a complete waste of time, especially the first half of this episode. The second half, I find, has a bunch of things in there that irritate me in this show and in the Star Wars series in general recently. But I thought the first half of this episode is really, really solid. All right, now I'm going to get into the spoilers for the episode, so you may want to jump ahead about 12 minutes, I would guess. So interestingly, we see a de-aged... Ewan McGregor fight an actual de-aged Hayden Christensen. <laughs> so I was wondering, like, the I knew they had brought back Hayden Christensen to play Anakin, and the idea that he was in that suit, maybe he was in that suit, who knows if he's even in the Darth Vader suit, but obviously we saw him in the rehabilitation chamber earlier in, in the season when he was all scarred up, but that they would get somebody, cover him in scar special effects, so he's barely recognizable, with a mask on as well, inside the chamber, And then in the suit, I assume, not always in the suit, maybe in the suit for some of the scenes. And of course, his voice is still being done by the 91-year-old, 91-year-old James Earl Jones, still doing the voice of Darth Vader. So it's like, really? Why did you even bother casting this guy? Well, we get to see him here, but the aged (laughs) So we do see him looking very much like he did 15, 20 years ago in those original prequel movies. And this is interesting. They set this up where they're going to flash forward and back, as you would assume, with this kind of setup we see... Obi-Wan fighting Anakin and Anakin always the aggressor and how Obi-Wan over the course of this spar gets the better of him because he gets distracted. His anger distracts him. And I really can't even go and say, well, this is why the first half works so well. I would say as any kind of critique that it's because they kept the story so simple. We have these scenes between Obi-Wan and Tawa that are very effective. She explains why she turned against what she believed the empire to be. This faction representing law and order, and how as she spent time with them, she realized it was simply an excuse to to mask this fascist regime. And all her scenes with McGregor as Obi Wan are good here. The flashback scenes between Anakin and Obi Wan are very good. And about halfway through the episode, we have this confrontation between Obi Wan and Reva. And finally, we discover what was not a surprise to anybody who's been paying attention that Reva was one of those younglings from the beginning of the series and that her real agenda is to kill Darth Vader. I tried to help them, but I couldn't. I was too weak. When he left, I played dead, hid with the bodies, felt them go cold. They were the only family I knew You're not serving him, are you? You're hunting him. Let me help you. Why would I ever trust you? Because we want the same thing. Do we, Obi-Wan? Do you really want Anakin dead? Where were you? While he was killing my friends? He was your Padawan. Why didn't you stop him? Why didn't you save us? I don't need your help. I don't need anyone. You won't stop him alone. You have no idea. When I've done alone. so she just wants to get close to Vader and she doesn't care she will take as many people out as she needs to she does not care first of all it's pure vengeance to kill Darth Vader but second of all if killing Vader saves potentially thousands of lives in the long run who cares if she kills a dozen people to get to him and it's this kind of blind anger that's turned her into the character she is and as I had earlier suspected in previous recap episodes This actress honestly was cast for this pivot because her scenes here with Obi Wan are not strained. They feel sincere. This is the best we've gotten from her performance this whole entire time. But of course, primarily what we have to see her doing is the grunting and screaming that we've seen in the first episodes. I did find one thing that is still kind of irritating here is the Leia character. And I do want to be clear here that when I'm criticizing the actress who plays Reva, and of course, the young actress who plays Leia, I am not criticizing the performers, right? Especially not the Leia character. A young child like this is not making a choice on camera. She's not the author of what's happening in the the show. And this is why I get angry at the show and not at the individual components of the show. Someone's masterminding all this. If you're like, I don't like this actress in this role, think about what that means. There are people who are auditioning hundreds of actresses to play these roles. So they are picking the one that creates the tone that they want. So if this is the tone you're getting, you don't like the tone. It's not the actress's fault. It's the people who selected them, first of all, to be the person in the role. And second of all, directed them via the screenplay, via the creative decisions, via the direction and the editing specifically to give that role an actor will sometimes give you seven, 10, 40 different versions of a same take. And then in the editing room, you decide which string of those sequences you want to string together to create their performance. So if you find their performance incredibly annoying, that means that whoever okayed this final version of the episode said, yep, that's what I want to (laughs) see. So that's my criticism. I just want to be clear. I'm not attacking a child actress. These are decisions that are made way after she's on set. They were made before she was hired and they were made after she, a year later when they were editing things together. That all being said, (laughs) this is a very annoying character. Leia is a very annoying character. And I don't understand this decision, once again, not the actress, but I don't understand this decision to make her act this way at this age as if, well, if you act that way when you're 19, if you're this kind of very headstrong and entitled princess at 19... That, of course, you were like that when you were seven or eight years old. Of course, you're like that from birth. That's not true. We all know if we have teenage relatives, the way you act at 17, the way you act at 15, the way you act at 24 versus the way you acted at seven or eight are very, very different. So I don't understand why they've written her character this way. She could be very intelligent. She could be all these things, but not like Leia is acting like a 25-year-old when she's eight. It doesn't make any sense. (laughs) So I said I wasn't going to disparage the show that much this time, but still find the leia character just very very badly written all right then i'm going to get to my nitpicks here at the end the first half like i mentioned really really strong stuff tala sacrificing herself that robot taking those bullets to let her live just another minute very touching really beautifully done right that this robot is almost like a, a comrade there at the very last moments obi-wan buying time and also bringing Riva in as an ally all interesting then we get towards the end of the episode this is where things get a little bit back into the funk of this show in general first of all i have this pet peeve about darth vader having these unlimited force powers this is something that i think began with the video game what was that one called the force Hmm, i forget what it's called shadow of the force something like that but all of a sudden you could like pluck spaceships out of the sky out of space you could be like oh i can visually see this spaceship orbiting the planet I can look at it, and with my Force powers, I can make it crash to the Earth. Honestly, if Darth Vader is that powerful, why would he have lasers on his TIE fighter? Lasers just like, you know, you can't even get through the Force field. He could just get close to one of these ships, just sneak up behind it, and then like tear hu- the whole hull off <laughs> if he wanted to. So I don't buy this incredible escalation of Force powers that the series has had in general. I also don't buy that they're like, they got away by having the fake-out ship which of course is slowly rising off the surface of the planet and then darth vader takes it down crashes it down to the ground tears the it into little pieces and then as he tears a hole literally through the entire <laughs> ship itself sees another one not like slowly lift off the ground just bzip, zip right off the ground like if it could move that fast why was it there in the first place how did they know darth vader was about to come through that door so they needed a fake out ship all right these are all nitpicks but it just annoys me. Just for what to, to make Darth Vader seem like this powerful? If he's this powerful, he doesn't need anybody else. He's more powerful than an army of people. He's more powerful than a Death Star at close range. It, it, it's just crazy, so a pet peeve of mine. I am happy, by the way, to see the Grand Inquisitor come back. I suspected he was gonna come back, although it really did seem like he was dead when he got split down the middle, practically, by uh, Riva earlier on. But no one's ever really dead on these uh, shows. And I'm just happy to see him back because I do think Rupert Friend is giving such a hilariously fun, not a bad performance when I say hilarious, just a very entertaining performance here as the Grand Inquisitor. Glad to see him back. Although there's only one episode left, so not sure how much he can do. And then, of course, they stab Reva exactly the same way that he she stabbed him. And he survived, but she's going to die. And of course, she's not going to die. There's no way she's going to die because she just found out that Luke is on the planet. So I assume she is headed to Tatooine. And now does she know that Luke is Vader's son at this point? I mean, protected the, the boy. She knows there's another boy. Does she know that for sure? I'm not sure. They do close a couple of loopholes from earlier in the show. How does she know that Anakin is Darth Vader? I'm like, wait a second, is this common knowledge? Turns out, actually, in the defense of the show up until this point, it's not. She somehow knows that Vader and Anakin are the same person. I mean, she never saw Anakin burning to death and then turned to darth vader but i guess her proximity to she knows the anakin vibe signature let's call it and even though i'm being a little sarcastic there i buy it sure why not right i mean darth vader can sense luke skywalker on another ship passing nearby i buy it sure the fact that she would be able to keep her intentions hidden from him though seems unlikely even if she has force powers but that's okay i'll accommodate that plot has to progress in some way But yeah, the whole way that that wraps up at the end, I think, is a little cheap. They could have come up with a smarter way to do that. The whole fake-out with the second ship is a little cheesy. And by the way, I don't think I saw the other ship. I literally rewound multiple times to see if I could see the second ship behind this ship, the fake-out ship. And I think this is a mistake in production. I don't see the other ship. However, in their defense, I will say that this episode was so dark, was so dark for some reason that maybe it was there and I just couldn't see it because it's so dark. I rewound and was watching this in my living room during the day, maybe if it was as pitch black, I could have seen more detail, but I literally could not see anything there. But that doesn't mean that the special effects people didn't put a ship there. It means I couldn't see it because the screen was too dark. This episode was so dark for some reason I can't explain, but it might be a goof up that they forgot to put it there at all. I'm pretty sure I just see the back of the cave and no other ship. So that's where we wrap things up. There, my guess here is that Riva is heading to Tatooine, but Obi Wan is still returning Leia to the Organas, and I assume Darth Vader and his cronies are headed. I mean, they know where they're headed. I assume so. We'll see how that goes next episode. I'm pretty certain now that it looks like this was all a setup for season two, and honestly, maybe they give another strong episode here at the end. To set things up for the next season. And all of this was just getting all that awkward setup in place. Possibly, Riva might end up becoming Luke's protector or something. And that was all part of the setup as well. But if that's the case, it's a little too little, a little too late. I'm not coming back for season two. Absolutely not. Even a good episode at the end is not going to sway me. But if you have been, enjoying this show or on the fence I think you will be happy with this episode and probably in general happy with the direction things have gone here at the end for me like I said not enough not enough alright finally let's get into the meat of this episode The Boys Episode 5 You killed Gunpowder didn't you? Did you use your little laser eyes? You're too fucking right I did and I felt good for once I leveled the fucking playing field but the whole point of what we do, the whole goddamn point, is that no one should have that kind of power. Well, ain't that just fucking fairies and dancing dildos, eh? I am to live right down here, mate, on planet Earth. So, season three, episode five of The Boys, the last time to look on this world of lies. Quite a mouthful. We open with some video footage of. The torture that Soldier Boy underwent for decades, apparently, when he was back in Russia, Mother's Milk is reviewing the video, but doesn't seem to be enjoying this. You would think that maybe there was a little Schadenfreude in here, seeing him be tortured, but not really sympathy. But there is some kind of element of disgust in seeing him get tortured. Directly following up on the finale from last week, we see that Mother's Milk is still very disappointed that Butcher took the 24-hour V, and Warshot gave it to Hue- to Huey as well. Huey, meanwhile, is having his V hangover, and there's a moment there where Butcher sees Huey as a young boy. So it doesn't really look like Ryan, but maybe he's seeing Ryan and it happens so quickly it's hard to place it, or whether it was somebody else. So I'm not sure if this was just him correlating Huey with Ryan, or if he's seeing Huey as an innocent of some kind. Kamiko, meanwhile, is not healing, as her interaction with Soldier Boy has dampened her healing powers, or we discover over the course of the episode that perhaps she's completely lost her powers which I speculated last week, which would be potentially the discovery that could be the way they defeat Homelander. Meanwhile, with the departure of Edgar, Ashley has been named CEO. But really, she's just a puppet for Homelander. Who's getting his ass kissed by everybody at the board? This is his first time he's been at the board, so they're introducing themselves. And when being asked just a general question, he takes it as an affront. That this board member is calling him stupid for not knowing what she's talking about. Ashley saves her, basically saves her life by telling her that she's humiliated herself and she has to leave, which he is more than happy to do. And you can imagine that Homelander at this moment has the words that Edgar threatened him with last week, that there'll be no one to shield him, that he's going to be responsible for the company now. And in very short order, he's not going to be very happy being in control of what. Meanwhile, Deep has been put in charge of crime analytics. He gives an emotional speech where he's So happy that finally, he always had a dream that he'd be able to fight crime on sea and on land. And now he can fight crime on land as well. But first, there's going to be a review process to make sure that everybody fits the high standards of Vought, which basically means no one's ever said anything negative about the Seven, which eventually means that almost everybody gets fired. But at this moment, he does bring them all cupcakes. And of course, the boys being the boys, they can't pass up the cheap joke. (laughs) So crime analytics turns into crime anal ticks when deep eats one of the cupcakes the boys are back from the USSR and they need get, they need to get kimiko to the hospital ASAP and there's a lot of tension between them they're not happy about Huey they're not happy that Butcher has been taking V Frenchie's very concerned about Kimiko and feels like she's been put in danger by all these actions so the boys are definitely splintering here meanwhile we find out from a news broadcast that Alex supersonic's Death has been covered up as an OD. If anyone had seen that body, (laughs) they would know this was not an OD. Starlight meets with Huey, and she's very concerned that them just being together could be endangering Huey. If Homelander knew, he would not be happy. She has to show up incognito. God forbid there's photographs of her with her ex-boyfriend. Homelander would not be happy. Huey at this moment does the right thing in telling her about Soldier Boy, that he's alive. And also that he took Temp V and that he's able to teleport. I thought he was running really fast last week. <laughs> did not realize it was legitimately teleporting, although it's much clearer in this episode, to me anyway, when we see him with his powers again. But she's really not happy about Huey trying to be a superhero, because what she likes about him is that he's not. I like the line here, by the way, where he says that usually, if a guy gets it, picks a fight with him at an intersection, he's usually like Dominic Toretto, because he's quick, and he's all about family. <laughs> although, in Dominic Toretto's, scenario in those fast and furious movies, he's usually not running away, but I do have a question in this universe. Does that mean that Charlize Theron is in the fast and furious movies and also the villain in the seven film that we saw at the beginning of the, of this season? Is there crossover possibly? Hmm. Just interesting to know that Vin Diesel is in this world as well. Then we see butcher. He's looking at the necklace that Ryan threw down, rejecting him in an earlier episode. And at that moment, Maeve shows up with more temporary V. Turns out that Butcher needs more. They break their sobriety together and end up having some pretty violent sex. <laughs> but before then, they have an interesting conversation about the addictive appeal of V. What's animal? Cody, myths, mate. Ain't nothing like this. It used to be months of live work to tell you on a suit. Gunpowder. Not even a New York minute. It must have felt good. I hated every second. No. The V just made me more. Me. With great power comes the absolute certainty that you'll turn into a right cunt. I mean, that's the thing, right? You're just people. All of he does is just amp up all that shit that's already inside. Your lot, just a bunch of walking nuclear erections. And it's not just Homelander. I mean, you've, you've fucking all got to go. Every fucking last One of you. Yeah. Something he doesn't enjoy, but it did make him feel powerful. But he hated every minute of it. Frenchie's in the hospital with Kimiko. Nina is there threatening them. She has a mission for him once again. She blames him for what's gone bad in Russia. She's lost her contacts. She's lost her credibility, considering she basically sent these guys there to kill all those people. She's going to take this out on Frenchie and gives him a mission to kill a father and daughter. But Kamiko is awake now and happy to have no powers. So, my theory was right in that case. Back at the Vought headquarters, Starlight runs into A Train and calls him out for ratting out Supersonic and getting him killed. Meanwhile, Ashley has coordinated a meeting between A Train and Blue Hawk, and Blue Hawk does the bare minimum to pretend like he really cares, he really wants to make an apology. And Ashley pushes him a little bit, saying, Yeah, Homelander will be happy if you do that. Kind of smooth this out a little bit. Although, We'll see in a few scenes from now, things are going to go very badly. Soldier Boy, we had seen earlier was in an airport in Russia. So had, has been working his way to the airport, sneaking around, gets onto a plane and ends up in New York city. And there's a little bit of culture shock after 40 years, but it's some Russian music playing on a little radio that actually triggers him. And he detonates like a mini nuclear bomb right in the middle of the city, killing 19 people. Then we see the first of several in this season, but just specifically a couple Of sequences here in this specific episode where we see a direct correlation between Homelander and Trump. Mother's Milk is showing up to pick up his daughter and Todd, her stepdad, loves Homelander. As we kind of worried that we saw him really drooling over Homelander's tirade during his birthday celebration and is actually trying to indoctrinate his daughter, Mother's Milk's daughter, with this. M.M. is not happy about this at all. And there's like some little sarcasm here with Todd saying, Oh, you're you in Facebook? I'll send you some some news articles. You should see these articles. <laughs> and also talking about how Homelander, this all-powerful psychopath, speaks for this for the common man, for this for the little guy. But of course, right in the middle of this, we see the news broadcast about the detonation in New York City. And MM basically has to abandon his daughter once again, and he's heading out to investigate. Which leads to a reluctant boys' reunion in New York City. Huey's there, and probably importantly, one of his former co-workers, is there as well and notices that his arm isn't broken anymore, which will probably get back to Victoria in some way. And M.M. is the one who figures out that Soldier Boy is most likely headed to The Legend. So The Legend is a fan favorite from The Boys comic book, which is styled on Stan Lee, the figurehead behind Marvel Comics, but apparently with a insatiable sexual appetite, as we see here <laughs> in this uh, episode as well, with all the stories that he's spewing constantly because they do head out to meet up with the legend, who is played by Paul Reiser. Paul Reiser having quite a renaissance in his later career with the reboot of Mad About You, maybe two years ago, I believe. But more importantly, of course, turning up in Stranger Things, and now in this show as well, two hugely popular genre shows. This whole sequence here is hilarious, where Paul Reiser invites the boys into his apartment and is trying to impress Huey with all of these sexual conquests that he's had But he's naming all these 80s pinups that Huey has no idea who he's talking about. He says, just Google it. Google it. Meanwhile, Starlight is trying to do her own investigation and goes through the crime analytics team. And it turns out there's hardly anybody left during this purge of non-loyal team members. Anybody who said anything negative about Homelander has been kicked off the team. This is yet another Trump metaphor here. Within the White House and within some of the security organizations, there was a big purge. For anybody who had said anything negative or tweeted anything negative or had ever said anything publicly negative against Trump, which left a lot of these agencies short-staffed. This is an extreme example of it, <laughs> wherein almost everybody is gone. train makes the absolutely terrible decision to bring Blue Hawk to the community center where his brother volunteers to do some apology. And it's as rote and non-sincere as you can imagine. And the crowd is having none of it. And things just escalate and get worse and worse. And on the way out, things actually get violent. And unfortunately, A-Train's brother gets the worst of it. Turns out he might end up paralyzed. And this might be, maybe, the turning point for A-Train. I mean, he got supersonic killed last week, trying to get back into Homelander's Good Graces. And is this finally a turning point for him? Remains to be seen. But I have a feeling it is. We did find out from that entertaining vignette with Paul Reiser that Soldier Boy is headed to meet up with his ex-girlfriend, crimson countess and that he didn't seem like he was going there for a nice reunion then there's a really great scene between mave and homelander where homelander really shows how emotionally fragile he is despite all this physical power he has invulnerability literally you know the real tragic thing in all of this is that more than anyone i knew what it was like for you it's swarmed Everywhere we went, every little mistake, front page news. It is lonely at the top, yes, but at least we had each other. We were lonely together. And I loved you in my own way. But you, what happened? Was anything about us ever real? Hmm. From the start, I hated you. But what's more, I fucking pitied you. You've completely. (laughs) In <laughs> the that's actually kind of funny don't you think <laughs> indian she's abducted by homelander and black noir i believe it's black noir it all happened so fast and the cover story eventually for this is that she's in rehab again but she's incommunicado and even when starlight questions ashley about it and says come on you can tell me i know you're scared but you got to tell me where is she she almost tells her but then she doesn't so where's Maeve right now good question at the same time that a train's getting the bad news about his brother In the same hospital, Kamiko and Frenchie are watching a musical together on their laptop. And for a moment, Kamiko has this fantasy of being normal. That she can actually speak. She starts singing. And they have a whole song and dance number here. And none of that is real, but she does kiss Frenchie. He freaks out a little bit and decides to go get coffee, but ends up getting abducted by Nina and her henchmen. And I do wonder if Kimiko is going to want her powers back when Frenchie's life is at risk. Then we catch up with Crimson Countess, she apparently is a cam girl on some cam site for people with superpowers. And she's doing some cyber sex with Seth Rogen himself, one of the producers of the show. And I think he's playing himself because he actually talks about having worked in a movie with a monkey actor. During the actual session, <laughs> they're interrupted by the boys who knock Crimson Countess out, tape up her hands so she can, can't use her powers. And they really just want to use her as bait. And they mention that your boyfriend's coming coming to meet with you. And she says, how did he get out of Russia? And of course, how did she know? And this leads us to the final sequence of the episode here. A few things coming together all at once. Earlier on, Huey had decided to take the V. Butcher was actually pressuring MM to take it as well, but he refused. And while they wait for Soldier Boy to arrive, he actually drugs MM. Just because he's afraid that if things go sideways, especially because he's going to be face to face with Soldier Boy who killed his entire family. He doesn't want M.M. to die. Starlight has arrived as well. And while she's having a private conversation, this is when the drugging happens, having a private conversation with Huey. Huey's explaining that he wants to protect her. And that's why he's taking the V. And she's telling him, don't do this. And while that's happening, we see that there's a negotiation between Butcher and Soldier Boy saying that he wants to have a team-up, as you folks call it, a team-up. Of course, a team-up against Homelander. Soldier Boy goes into the trailer. Very sad that Crimson... Countess is now just working in a trailer with her animals. And Ben, soldier boy, asks her, why? Why did you rat me out? Why did you give me up to the Russians? How much did they pay you? And she reveals that she wasn't paid anything at all. You look so young. You don't. I'm so, so sorry. It wasn't my idea. God. You got to believe me. How much did the Russians pay you? Hmm? They didn't. What? They didn't pay you anything. I loved you. All those years that they burned me. pumped me for the poison, I held on to the hope that you would come. That you would save me. Because I still loved you. I didn't love you. I hated you. We all did. Just because she hated him she always hated him even when they were together and that everyone the whole team hated him homelander much this is maybe too direct a correlation to homelander's situation with the toxic relationship with his ex-girlfriend so history repeats itself soldier boy is hurt to find out that he was betrayed by her and he uses radiation power to incinerate her which also brings starlight and huey running and then in the final moments Starlight asks Huey once again to not go, please stay with her. She needs him to be himself, not a superhero. But he goes and leaves her to take care of M.M. And that's where we leave things. No more secrets, huh? Huey, you're teaming up with a murderer. This is the only way that I can save you from Homelander. I'm doing this for you, whatever it takes. Remember? Come with us. You and me against the world. Please don't go. An interesting episode. As I mentioned, if I have one criticism here, it's a little on the nose that the biographical backstory for Homelander and Soldier Boy are like basically identical. (laughs) Maybe it could have been a little different. But I do wonder what happens when they meet. If they have so much in common, would there be a team up? I don't think Homelander would allow a team up, by the way. Even if possibly they have so much in common, I can't imagine Soldier Boy's ego would allow to have a co-billing. As I suspected previously, the fact that Soldier Boy was able to remove Kamiko's invulnerability, perhaps he can do the exact same thing to Homelander. And I would love to see Homelander declawed in the next season of the show. What a fascinating reversal for that character. But another question is, let's say that he does do that. He's able to steal away Homelander's powers. This is another monstrous egomaniac who maybe has been brought low and has learned some humility from his decades of torture or maybe he's just more furious than ever and if he's the head honcho if he becomes the king of the hill once homelanders out of the way is he any better meet the new boss same as the old boss so is that the direction the show's going in does edgar still have something up his sleeves i feel like he does very curious to see how that goes and where's maeve where do they put maeve they're gonna have to rescue her there's three more episodes in this season there's obviously going to be a confrontation between all these folks. I wouldn't be surprised at all if in the very next episode we actually see a battle royale between these folks and everyone gets hurt. Potentially, even Homelander gets hurt more than he's been hurt before and everybody has to regroup and lick their wounds and they come up with a secondary strategy. That remains to be seen. So yes, three more episodes. I'm recording this at night, so time for me to sign off, but I hope you did enjoy that and I hope you enjoyed the recommendations I had earlier in the episode as well. Next week, we'll be back with more coverage of The Boys. We'll be discussing the finale of Obi-Wan Kenobi. And maybe I'll be getting a review in for The Black Phone. As always, remember to recommend this to one of your friends or family if you enjoy the content. Check our back catalog for other episodes you may enjoy. Coverage of Severance, the first half of this final season of Better Call Saul, Only Murders in the Building, coming back in just about a week. We covered season one, Sona and I, and we will be covering season two beginning in the next couple weeks. So catch up on any of those if you are catching up on some of these things as well. So enjoy some of that content, and I'll talk to you soon.